Welcome back, everybody. It's the next episode of the Fearless Business Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Waite, the Fearless Business Coach. I've got an incredibly esteemed guest on the show today. It is Ali Abdul, who is a qualified doctor and also fast approaching 2 million, yes, 2 million subscribers on YouTube. We'll be digging into our conversation straight after this. You're listening to the Fearless Business Podcast. You're in the best place to learn about how to grow a business, get more clients, and make more money without fears and limitations, all while having fun in the process. Robin Waite is the founder of Fearless Business, a business accelerator helping coaches, consultants, and freelancers double their income and more. Now here's your host, Robin Waite. Ali, I, I can't, I think everybody in the group knows how excited I've been about getting you on here as a, as a guest <laughs> to speak at Fearless Live. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for you giving up your time because I, I know you're a very busy guy um, and you, you've got a lot of things going on. Um, and uh, I, I have to I have to say, like, um, we, we probably only met um, officially, I guess, about sort of um, six or seven months ago, wasn't it, through um, a mutual friend on a mastermind that we're both members of. But um, uh, I was following your YouTube channel before that, um, you know, and very inspired by the content which you've been putting out. And one of the nice things is that when you when you get to meet somebody in something like a mastermind, you do sometimes see a slightly different side to them um, and you get to know them on a bit more of a personal level. And one of the things I will say about you, Ali, um, is that you are such a humble guy um, what you've created is just um, uh, hugely inspirational. And I think something that many people who are, are going to be sort of listening to us chat this afternoon will will be aspiring to. I know I certainly do. So um, welcome, Ali. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Big virtual round of applause and welcome to Ali, everyone. Uh, he's yeah, thanks for having me. It should be uh, it should be fun. Is my is my audio quality all right? Your audio quality is great, Ali. So yeah, absolutely no problems there. Um, so we're we're doing this as more of like an interview style rather than a presentation. Obviously, the topics around um, the the audience uh, growth which you've created for yourself over the last few years. Give give people a quick intro because you're you didn't start out life as a YouTuber. You went on quite a different sort of um, path to get to where you got to. So quick intro, please. Yeah, sure. So uh, as a quick intro, hi, my name's Ali. Um, I am. Uh, I, I normally introduce myself as a doctor because that's still more like my main gig. But I started my YouTube channel when I was in my final year of med school, and uh, initially it was a content marketing machine for my business. I set up a business when I was in my second year of med school that was helping people get into med school. It was like a coaching courses, that kind of vibe. And then I started reading about, hey, content marketing is a thing. Uh, and SEO is dead. And it's all about content marketing. I was like, all right, cool. Uh, and I dabbled a little bit with the writing blog posts and stuff. But I never quite actually like managed to do it properly. But then uh, in like 2017, I thought, hang on. YouTube, like so basically everyone I knew was, everyone I knew who was studying medicine at Cambridge was turning to YouTube for information because all of our lectures were absolutely terrible and they were boring. And this is the pattern you see with medical students all around the world where the real lectures are crap <laughs> and YouTube is where the good stuff is at. So I thought, hang on, why don't I start making YouTube videos, teaching people the stuff that I'm teaching on my courses and using that content marketing model, if I can get, give really good free content, then people will be like, oh, this guy's legit. Let me sign up for his paid course. Um, so that was how my YouTube journey started in 2017. And after like very quickly about sort of 10, 20 videos into it, 
I started seeing some traction and people were commenting things. Oh, this is really helpful that you've given me this tutorial on preparing for the BMAT section one. And I started realizing, hang on, like this audience is also interested in what life as a medical student is like. And so then I started to do vlogs about life as a final year medical student at Cambridge. Um, and that went really well. And as, as it, the, the more I started kind of expanding, expanding out into the student market, giving educational content around how to study for exams, basically just following the Gary Vaynerchuk model of document don't create just documenting the stuff I was doing already. Here's how I take notes for my exams. Here's how I take notes on my iPad. Here's how I studied. And here's why I studied like this. That started to resonate a lot with people. And so here we are four years later, channels now just hit 1.6 million subscribers and it's changed my life in like a zillion ways that I could never have imagined four years ago. But here we are. If I had some poppers and streamers, I'd set 1.6 million subscribers. I don't know if everybody caught that. It's like, it's just um, most of us could dream about that in terms of like a YouTube channel. But again, you kind of just like, oh, it's 1.6 million subscribers. Um, what would you say? So when when you were um, starting out that journey and starting to produce the content, I think this is one of the biggest mistakes that people make. They produce content which they think people want and they don't tend to often listen to the feedback. But it sounds very much like you were led by your subscribers and the sort of content which they wanted. Yeah. So in the initial stages, because I'd been teaching my course for five years at this point, I knew what the stuff was that people wanted because I got that real-time feedback. Um, and therefore, when I was started making my videos, it wasn't that I was making completely from scratch. Like I knew what worked and I put that stuff that definitely worked in the videos. And that led to people having eureka moments that, oh, I've never thought of the <laughs> molar mass equation in chemistry that way. Thanks for explaining it. By the way, dot, 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 like how do you take notes or how do you do this? And uh, most of the subsequent content ideas came from actually just reading the, the comments and replying to absolutely everyone, replying to all my Instagram DMs and just writing down, be like someone saying, hey, what apps do you have on your iPhone? Oh, that's a great video idea. Someone being like, what's that monitor you're using on your desk? How are you connecting it to your MacBook? That's a really good idea. Let's make a video about that. So really kind of, that's what, that's what I love about YouTube, that once you have a critical mass, which is only like a few hundred subscribers or like a few videos, you start getting that feedback from the audience. They're literally telling you what they want to see next. And I know that um, like, like now your videos are like, I mean, all of your videos are pretty professional, but now they're incredibly sort of well-polished. But there's like, there was probably your, some of your early videos, if you're like me, you look back on them and you maybe cringe a little bit like, oh my God, was I wearing that? Did I, did I film it on my, my mobile? You know, but when you started out, did you kind of, was it just a bit sort of growth hacky and just do what I can with what I've got? And then gradually over a period of time, kind of invest in kit and things like that. Yeah, broadly. So the, the first videos I filmed were on my iPhone. Um, I kind of knew that uh, I knew I would fall into the pattern of caring too much about gear. And I knew that gear doesn't matter. Uh, so I thought, okay, let's start with my iPhone. And then, then let's start with like this cheap ass camera that I got just for the business. Um, very quickly, once I, once I started to get traction, this was three or four months into it. I thought, okay, do I really want to take YouTube seriously? Um, and if so, I should invest in gear to make my videos better. Um, I think early on, I was competing against other students, other medical students. And I had the unfair advantage that I had a business that was making money that I could funnel business expenses through. Um, other people in the same space, my age, didn't even know what that meant. And so I could buy a 1500 quid camera and effectively write it off. And so I was really conscious that to be like, I, I want to be the gold standard amongst medical students for like quality of videos. Uh, but that happened about three or four months into it when I decided to take it seriously. 
So around that point, though, what, what was your kind of guiding principle for creating content? Was it ultimately to kind of monetize it or was it audience growth? What, 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 was, the, what was your reason why at that point? Yeah, um, <laughs> I feel like I'm in good company or, or, or maybe not, but it, it, was, it was always about monetization. Like I don't, I, don't, I don't care about audience growth for the sake of being famous. Like who, who gives a toss about that? I, I care about audience growth because audience growth leads to people buying my shit further down the line. <laughs> and that was always in my mind. When you're a YouTuber or targeting students, you have to pretend that that's not the reason why you're doing it. You have to act as if it's like, oh, altruism, and oh, I just love helping people. But it would be, <laughs> I would be lying if I said that money was not the primary driver here. And I just saw kind of long term. I knew I, like, I knew how to make courses. I knew I knew I could launch an ebook if I wanted to. I knew I had stuff to teach, and I knew that building an audience through free content was going to be the way that more people were going to buy my paid content. I never really thought YouTube itself would be such a source of revenue. I, I always assumed it would be from funneling people into courses. Were you, was it just YouTube you focused on at that point? Were you kind of trying out sort of different platforms as well to potentially try and monetize your content? Yeah, it was just YouTube. Um, for the first year, the only thing I focused on was YouTube. I sort of heard about Instagram, but I didn't see many potentials for monetization with that. TikTok wasn't a thing then. Snapchat, no one was cared about. Definitely no one my age was using Facebook. So I was really thinking YouTube all the way um, and <laughs> trying to not fail my med school exams alongside. 100%. I, and I think this is one of the biggest mistakes. And I think one of the first learnings that I hope people get take from this is actually that the focus which you applied to just one channel. Because like um, one of the stories I always tell Ali is like in 2004, when I started building websites commercially to, to grow a business, all you needed was a website, a business card and a, and a BNI networking you know, um, membership and you could get clients. But like in 2003, Zuckerberg was, you know, just starting out and building, um, uh, building Facebook and things like Instagram, Snapchat, and all of the other great apps that are out there now, which we've kind of taken for granted weren't around. So you didn't have the choice. Now everyone seems to want to be on all of the different platforms. I just don't think you can build a successful, um, successful foundations for your profile if you're spreading yourself too thin. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Like in a dream world, we would all be Gary Vaynerchuk and posting 18 pieces of content on every social platform every day. But in the real world, I still think YouTube is, uh, un un uh unless you have a very specific, like a fitness or like, like aesthetic focused business in which Instagram is, is reasonable. I still think for the vast majority of things, YouTube is the way forward. And uh, it's, um, in, in the part-time YouTubers Academy, you shared, um, so obviously I, I took part in the first cohort and then Luke's background on the second cohort as well, but you shared some of the, the stats around it, which I think are quite remarkable. And it also gives something I think tangible for people to grasp hold of. But you, sh you showed one particular slide, which was about how many videos people had in order to achieve a certain number of subscribers which you could then tie into sort of, I guess, guesstimate revenue streams. So can you give us an idea on what those numbers look like? Yes. I'm just thinking if I can bring up that slide, but if I can't find it in the next five seconds. Not a problem. I put you on the sure spot. I know the numbers off the top of my head. Aha, I have a slide. Okay, here we go. Um, this is the fundamental for experiment. So share screen. Boom. Um, okay, so how many videos do you need to make? So if, if you guys want to have a guess, like post in the chat, how many videos do you need to make to hit a million subscribers on average? Just have a, have a guess, just ch chuck a number in the chat and see what happens. Um, this is like the, the exercise we do for our uh, time YouTuber Academy. 600, 500, 15, one, one and a half thousand, hundreds. Okay. So if we, uh, so this data is from TubeBuddy, which is a Chrome extension that all the YouTubers use. They have data from like 4 million plus YouTube channels. 
the average channel with 1 million subscribers has 3,873 videos. Um, <laughs> so with that in mind, have a guess. 100K to 1 million, how many videos does the average channel have? I think by average, they're using median here. So we've got some guesses, 1,500. Um, I mean, again, we, we have a, yeah. a mutual, mutual friend in James Janney who's got, uh, what is it, about a dozen videos now? Uh, but about he's a dozen videos, yeah. 600,000 subscribers. So he's kind of like, there, there are people who are going to buck the trend, you know, with, with yeah. money. So, yeah. Um, 10K to 100K. So this is 418 videos. Um, and I think the most interesting one is this one. 1,000 to 10,000 subscribers. The average channel has 152 videos. And so I know so many people who get hung up on video number one, video number two, video number 21. The average channel between 1K and 10K is 152 videos. <laughs> it's it's going to take a little, a little bit of time. Um, and then these were my numbers. So I hit 1,000 subscribers after 52 videos. So this was two videos a week for six months while I was in med school, and then 10K at 91. Um, and uh, sort of uh, my growth trajectory started to kind of go away from the average reasonably quick, quickly but I, I say quickly this was like two years in um of making like two to three videos a week every week without fail um so that's a hell of a lot of videos um but yeah Do you know ali it's 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 been a funny enough it's been a recurring theme for um a lot of people we'll just um come back to you for a second if that's okay so it's, it's been a recurring theme actually for all of the speakers we've had today that there's kind of no overnight success um johnny said it ed said it alex said it again during his you know he spent four years developing his membership program and um you've kind of just reiterated there it's not like you just have one video and it blows up this is something which you develop over a long period of time was was there a time in your journey where you got to like video number 61 and thought, why the heck am I doing this? <laughs> um, so weirdly, not really. I think because my goals for YouTube, I uh, to be honest, I was thinking if I can hit 4,000 subscribers by the end of my first year, that'll be doing really, really, really well. Uh, and if I can hit 10,000 subscribers in two years time, then I'll have access to the YouTube space in London and then I'll be able to like meet YouTubers in real life. Um, I... This is partly why uh, we, we, we haven't talked about this in the mastermind, but I don't like setting kind of outcome goals. Like I didn't want to have, hey, you know, X, like I say I wanted to hit 4,000 subscribers by year one, but, but really my actual goal was I just need to make two videos a week and I'm going to do this for the foreseeable future. And I hope that something good will happen further down the line. And making two videos a week is 100% within my control. And the nice thing about YouTube is that, like, the, the, the way motivation works, as you guys probably know, is you when, you when you get a small success, that, like, well, it gives you a dopamine hit, and then that sort of leads to sort of the fire of motivation continuing to be fueled. And the nice thing with YouTube is that every time you post a video, you get some views and you get some comments and some new subscribers. And the numbers never really go down just because people generally tend not to unsubscribe from channels en masse. Uh, and so every time it, it does feel like you're making slow and steady progress over time. And as is the case with all these things, that becomes like an exponential compounding curve. Um, so I never really had any moments where I was like, oh, this is not worth it because it was always increasing and it was always fun. Because it, it, it can be quite easy to kind of get hung up on sort of stats and gaming the algorithm and things like that. So what what when you start to get a bit more sort of scientific about it, because obviously you mentioned TubeBuddy, which is a great tool for sort of YouTube growth and optimization. What 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 did you start? What tools did you use? What what kind of metrics were you working to? And you started to sort of gamify, it, I suppose, a little bit more. Yeah. So I spent like uh, ages and ages researching the algorithm and figuring out like what does it take to grow on YouTube. 
And the only answer that I came to was the only thing it takes is to make videos that people want to watch. Uh, and that means two things. Number one, people need to be, people need to click on the video to begin with. And number two, they need to watch. And the longer you can keep them watching, the better your video does, the more the algorithm favors your channel, the more the algorithm pushes out your video to more and more people. Because all the algorithm wants to do is get more people to watch, to stay on YouTube for longer. So if your video is doing that, then, that, then it, things are going to work. Um, but it's that first bit of the equation that people neglect, I think, that someone has to click on my video in the first place. That means that annoyingly, and we all hate this, but titles and thumbnails are ridiculously important. The more interesting your title can be, this is where the word clickbaity comes in. And I don't, I don't really like the word clickbait because it implies it's negative. I think clickbait is only negative if they're not getting what they were promised. So back in the day, like 10 years ago, people would have uh, thumbnails with like bikini models on them and it would be a completely unrelated video. That That's clickbait because you're trying to get a click without delivering on the promise generally uh, on YouTube anyway. Um, whereas I prefer to think of it as like intriguing. Like, can I make the title so intriguing that someone is compelled to click on it? And then can I deliver on the value that they were promised so that they stay, stay watching for longer? That means they like me because I'm I'm giving being honest and giving them good stuff, and it means the algorithm likes me because it's keeping people on the platform. So really, those those are the two things that only, only two things the algorithm cares about, and optimizing for those at all costs is, I think, the way. And and what what other sort of when you're kind of coming up with um, sort of a plan for your content, what is there like? How do you choose your themes for content? Yeah, so this is a this is a constant struggle. Mostly, it's around thinking about who is my target audience uh, and what do they want and what problem can I solve for them and why are people coming to me in particular? What are the skills that I have? What are the things that I enjoy that I can, the, the way I think of it is that I can teach to someone else. This is the same with businesses. Like as you guys know, you have your, your avatar and you figure out what they want and you offer them, offer them things. It's exactly the same with YouTube videos. My avatar is a 22 year old medical student in London who was semi pushed into medicine by his parents because he didn't really want to do it. He was like, oh, okay, I'm here now. I might as well wants to do the entrepreneurship thing, but hasn't really learned how to code or anything, wants to reload the books, but doesn't really have the time, prefers hanging out with friends rather than going to a nightclub or something, bit of a nerd, always has like, aspires to have the latest Apple gadgets at all time. I have this like three page avatar of my, my, my target. And I think, okay, what does this person want? And how can I solve their things? So that's like one way of idea generation. And the other one is actually just, I spend a lot of time watching other YouTube videos and thinking, oh, hang on, this dude's done a video called How I Take Notes on My iPad. This dude has 100,000 subscribers, but that video has got 5 million views. Okay, that's an interesting video title. And then basically stealing ideas from other people where a video is perform performing disproportionately well compared to their channel size. Um, and that's how I've come up with some of my most viral videos, just basically copying the idea from someone else. Um, and th I appreciate that, you know, it's quite candid that you've kind of shared that with us as well, as well. But then if that's what people want, then why shouldn't we produce more content like that? Exactly. Um, Lindsay's asked quite an interesting question, actually. Do you feel that you give everything away that you teach by doing that many videos? And there's a second part to this question, which I'm going to tag onto that, because I know you have, you monetize your channel through a number of different ways, through affiliate schemes and sponsorships and using things like um, Skillshare in terms of where your courses are. You've got the part-time YouTube Academy. So a lot of your content is already out there on your YouTube channel, but then it's repurposed into these other products now. Um, so you my view is you should give everything away on YouTube because it inspires people, but they can't implement. Would you share that view? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> give everything away. Uh, weirdly, the more you give away, the more people buy the paid stuff. Um, because I mean, and 
there there is something to the paid stuff. There there is something to the content component of the paid stuff, i.e. it's all in one place and it's in a structure that makes sense. Um, Like most of my courses that I've done really well on Skillshare, all of the material I've talked about in different YouTube videos, but the fact that it's all in one place in a course that you can watch for an hour is a huge value add for people. Um, Equally with the YouTuber Academy, we're not really selling the content because the content you can find for free if you know how, how hard like where, where to look what we're selling is like the accountability and like the community and the implementation uh and that was something that you really helped me appreciate robin when i was thinking oh but what if we what if people think that they're not getting their money's worth because all the content's on my youtube channel like no not one person has ever said that in our i don't know the last 800 people we've had through the cohort no, and I, I think like pe- like you said, people buy from people at the end of the day. That like it's always about that human to human connection. And and um, you know, my 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 first forty videos actually that I produced were actually from online business startup. Um, you know, I just took a chapter and and went through it, like put five bullet points down for each chapter as a video. They're the ones I cringe about because I have this god awful shirt that I was wearing, this like wibbly wobbly background, and you know behind me. But actually, they're still like two or three of them are still like the most viewed. Um, videos on my channel, you know, because they're still topics that are relevant even five years on, you know, bizarrely. Um, somebody's asked, how, how do you decide about like what length the video to produce as well? Uh, this is a, an, always an ongoing debate. Um, generally, I, it's, it's, it's hard to say because it, it, it always varies for, the, for the different channels. For my channel, we've done, we've not, we've crunched the numbers on this, and we found that videos that are longer than fifteen minutes do better than videos that are shorter than fifteen minutes. Um, most channels I know have found this as well. But the old school way of thinking about YouTube is that people on YouTube have short attention spans and they only watch two minutes of content. Um, the new school way that people think about YouTube is that when someone goes on YouTube, generally they're ready to sit down and watch a lot of stuff. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like a destination people go to, kind of like Netflix. You wouldn't say someone watching TV has a short attention span. As long as the stuff is good, they will just keep on watching it. Um, and so I've found that for my channel and for most people I know who do very well on YouTube, actually piling more content into a longer video tends to do better in the long run than shorter videos. Having said that, when you're starting out, shorter video, the, the shorter your video, the more of them you'll make. And it's the quantity of videos that leads to you getting good at actually making videos. So it's far better to make 100 five-minute videos than it is to make five 100-minute videos, if that makes sense. Because you're just learning so much more by making 100 videos than you are by making five. So it's about balancing those two things. Yeah, and I, I can kind of back that up because, I mean, you know at the moment my my strategy is kind of taking the podcast videos and repurposing them, which yeah. identified some upsides to it. We've also identified, you know, a number of flaws with that model because people are coming on maybe expecting just to see me on there and then they're seeing my guest, as you called them, a little, little old lady that you saw in one of the videos <laughs> made me laugh. Yeah. But you're absolutely right when you look at it and look at the engagement on that and and what, what kind of people sort of see in the thumbnail and then expect in the video and then obviously the length of it. But um. What, but what it has meant, though, is that we've been able to, um, off the back of creating that volume of videos, create a systemized sort of process around the production of it. Who do, what do we need to outsource to where? At what point do we get the captures done? At what point do we get all of the other sort of paraphernalia done around the video as well? So um, I definitely say, that, you know, there is, there's always benefits to both quantity over quality and quality over quantity. And as I mentioned, you, a lot of your videos are kind of more documentary style. Do you use like a story framework when you produce your, your videos? Um, some of the time. So there is a story framework uh, you guys might, might have come across, the hero's journey. Um, 
which is basically the model that all almost all stories that have done like uh, that have done really well across like the last 2000 years follow this model like you know uh, there is a person in like a little village and then like someone comes to them and gives them this inciting incident and they are they go on this adventure and but then they say no I don't want to go on the adventure and then they go on the adventure and then they get changed as a result of it and they have to overcome a demon and slay their inner whatever and then they come back to the village so Star Wars Lord of the Rings Harry Potter in a way these all follow the hero's journey model um, the way that we apply that to videos is by basically abstracting that into a who is the character what do they want <laughs> why can't they get what they want what are the stakes um, who or what helps them get what they want uh, and how are they transformed as a result of it and so within my video creation template i use notion we literally ask ourselves those questions for every single video what do they want what are the stakes why can't they get it and what helps them and often for educational videos that like even if the video isn't structured exactly like that just thinking about that really makes us get into the feet of the viewer to think okay are we actually solving a problem here or am i just i don't know <laughs> talking for the sake of it yeah, because I, I think there is also, you know, there there are some people who kind of produce video for the sake of producing video to satisfy their own ego. Whereas, like, I one of the things about your channel is I always every single video you learn, you know, one or more things from it that you can actually practically take away. Um, uh, one of the things, uh, can we sh if we shift gears for a second as well, because I know that obviously we can talk we can talk about all of the tactical kind of ins and outs about video production kit and analytics and stuff like that, but. Um, a major part of this I, I want people to start to think about is how they can kind of use leverage YouTube to start to think about monetizing it for their business. So as you know, many of the people who are here on sort of joining us today are the coaches, consultants, freelancers running their own small businesses. Um, you know, so they have, they have a baseline of revenue coming in through the work they do with their clients. Um, where, what was the point? Was it because it, you started off your monetization, I guess, to the usual route, which is switch on AdSense effectively and, and make, you know, it's like for every every person who clicks on one of the, the ads at the start of a video, you make a couple of pence, don't you? Yeah. And then where did you, where did you go from there? Where, what was, what, what, how did you kind of start to build layers of revenue um, off the back of sort of YouTube? Yeah. Um, so I think, for, for for you guys here, the, the most interesting one is that you, you already have businesses where you're coaching, consulting, um, getting like funneling people from your audience into your coaching consulting program is obviously a great way of monetizing YouTube. Uh, creating an evergreen online course uh, is another fantastic way to do it because then the more videos you make, the more top of fun people you're getting into the top of your funnel and then if your funnel is nice, then you're getting people to pay for your stuff further down the line. Uh, that's basically what I did. Like uh, a year into starting YouTube, I filmed uh, some online courses for the medical school stuff. And I thought, okay, let's continue. Like the more people, the more medical students watch my stuff because it's legit, the more they're going to sign up to my courses because they'll be legit as well. <laughs> and that was like the primary source of monetization on my channel initially. And that worked so well that I was like, okay, what are all the other things I can just create a course about? Um, and because like, once you know how to do video, because you're making YouTube videos, it becomes pretty easy to put together an online course and it just takes like a weekend of work. And so my very first online course was a course on how I edit videos in Final Cut. So it's a very like meta course about how I, how I just learned to edit videos. And I, I had zero experience editing videos. I just did it for two years. I made a course about it. Um, that course took me one day to film and it took a freelancer two days to edit. Wow. And since September 2019, that course has been making $6,000 a month off Skillshare with zero 
zero promotion on my part just by having a link in my video description. And then I was like, all right, Skillshare is great. Let's make another one and another one and another one. Now I've got like nine courses on Skillshare. Skillshare just makes our business about $65,000 every month in passive income at this point because once we make a course, we just leave it up there and like link to it occasionally and never really bother plugging it anymore. I know we're leaving a lot of money on the table because if we had them self-hosted and did a whole marketing funnel around it, it would probably make more money. But I just can't be bothered to do that. So <laughs> Skillshare is still pretty good. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah. it's it's no different to the reason why I list my books on Amazon because, you know, I could build a, a funnel to get people yeah. to buy the, the, the books from my website and make greater margins. But at the end of the day, Amazon, also, like Skillshare, all, already has its own built-in audience yeah. as well. So... So yeah, so building, keeping it in-house isn't often always the most efficient use of sort of time, but it also does open it up to um, uh, larger audiences. You hit quite a milestone in um, 2020 as well, didn't you, with um, with the monetization sort of general of everything? Yeah, like it was weird. Like in, in, in 2020, we had like 1.3 million or something in pounds in, in revenue. And that was just like absolutely mental. Um, <laughs> and like I, since I, like the last 10 years of my life, I've had this dream of financial independence and read Tim Ferriss for our work week and started reading all these like business books and following all this startup stuff. Um, but it just sort of happened so quickly, just like between, I don't know, Mar- <laughs> basically as soon as lockdown started, suddenly our sort of <laughs> revenue started to massively spike. Um, and then when we launched our YouTuber Academy, that was the first time I was really charging people for a product. Uh, and I was really scared about this. And Robin, you really helped as well. Like I was so terrified. Like, oh my God, people are going to think I'm a I'm a sellout if I charge more than $200. Even if I charge $200 for something, they're going to think I'm a sellout. Uh, and then you and, and our other friends in the mastermind encouraged me to think in terms of value-based pricing rather than cost-based pricing. Then I read Take Your Shots and I've recommended to like loads of people. And I was like, damn, I need to have a I need to have a product. I need a package. I need like a, a thing that it's offering. And then once we launched our YouTuber Academy, suddenly that just doubled the revenue of our business overnight basically so thank you for that <laughs> you're welcome. no you're more than welcome um uh, one of the sort of biggest conundrums that a lot of people in our space kind of get as well uh, get uh, or kind of worry about is um it's like do i go out and sort of try and make money first or do i build an audience first and i think your kind of case in point of let's build the audience let's get growth on 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 one single platform first because you know you were when you launched the part-time youtuber youtuber academy you weren't quite 1.5 i think you were 1.4 million subscribers but you were just massively oversubscribed for that first cohort even at the higher price point that we discussed and uh, there's, there's a little pixie dust moment in the middle of this as well which i'll, I'll ask as the second question in a moment but um how, how do you think it made it easy just happen easier i should say having that audience pre-built who already knew you know had the no like and trust built that you could then launch that into because you got 460 people wasn't it signed up yeah yeah it, it really felt like cheating i didn't i didn't think it would happen that way um because people i know who have launched courses at that price point without the built-in audience have really struggled having to you know, shill themselves out on Twitter for ages, do sales calls, all this kind of stuff, and get like five people in their cohort at the end of it. I was kind of expecting that because I just been quite like, I I think I had a weird impression of what my audience on YouTube was like because the weird thing about YouTube is that you have the comments, and in the comments, people are a bit weird in the comments. Like generally, the comments are very nice, but the sort of vibe of the comments is that it's like thirteen to seventeen year old kids commenting on you on YouTube videos. 
And in my head, like even even though my analytics were saying that the bulk of my audience is 25 to 34 males in America, it's it it really felt to me internally that the bulk of it was like 13-year-old kids from Pakistan because they were the ones being like, bro, do you pray five times a day and like commenting stupid things on my videos? And as soon as we launched this, this YouTuber Academy, even on Twitter and my mailing list, suddenly we had an influx of people coming in and these were like professional people, like mostly older than me, people in their 30s and 40s with kids and real jobs and real real adults signing up for this course. I was like, bloody hell. I didn't realize these people existed. But in hindsight, it makes perfect sense because these are the people who are not commenting on YouTube videos because why would you comment on YouTube videos when you're like a 35-year-old business owner with kids? Like, it's just a total waste of time. <laughs> um, and so... I think the audience really, really, really helped. But the audience, uh, the, my weird impression of the audience also was at risk of holding holding us back. Um, Do you know, and, and you're not alone there because uh, what, like one of the key things that we sort of teach in, uh, or coach around in Fearless is about how our own beliefs um, about our products and services, like if we start to make decisions on behalf of our clients, quite often those assumptions are actually wrong. Yeah. And the only way to find out, like to as you know, as, as a doctor, it, to test an assumption is, it, or to, to work out whether it's right is to go out and test that assumption, go out and gather data and feedback and see whether yeah. it's right or not. And thankfully you were proven wrong. <laughs> yeah, thankfully. <laughs> and now like even, even with my team now, I'm, I'm seeing this pattern where we, I would suggest something and they would say, oh but we can't possibly do that i'll be like oh why not be like oh because it would be too this and it's just like that mindset of actually challenging assumptions and thinking is this actually true or are we just telling ourselves a story that's saying oh we can't possibly run more than three cohorts a year because obviously no one's going to like that and people are going to think we're sellouts like really i mean if we've got the demand we can increase the supply Uh, yeah i think testing assumptions is, is really important. Yeah. And I, I noticed there was a lot, you know, quite a number of people who kind of had, who'd been in cohort one who then went through cohort two again, but it's because it's like, it's like picking up a book five times. You can get 10 different lessons out of it. Like having, you know, two lessons each time you pick it up, you'll learn something new each time. Um, but yeah, that, um, the pixie dust moment I referred to earlier, earlier on as well. And this, this really made my sort of my heart sing. And I'm so pleased for you. I think you got about 250 sales in, didn't you? And then and you were like, we have to control um, like demand for this because like the, the only way to do that was to, I think you doubled the price or something, did you? Didn't you mid-launch because it was the only way to like control those numbers? Yeah, yeah. I remember having a conversation with you about this, being like, should we do this? Should we do this? <laughs> um, yeah. It, weirdly, pe- people still signed up at the double price tag, and no one really knew that the price tag was before. And it, we had like five people who emailed us saying, oh, hey, I saw the price tag is doubled. And we just honored the exist the original price for them because they saw it. Um, but like everyone I've spoken to who runs courses says that it's really, really scary increasing your prices. But when you do, you realize that people are still signing up. And in a way, the quality of people signing up increases because the sorts of people who pay five grand for something are different to the sorts of people who pay 500 for something. And the five grand people are generally more motivated and less handholdy than the 500 people, uh, which extends to $50 and $5 as well. So, yeah. Expensive. And you had um, you had sort of multiple. You had several products, didn't you? It wasn't just the the single. Here's here's the course. That's it. You had a couple of um, sort of mentoring type programs built into it as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I was big on the whole pricing, having different pricing options, uh, just to try and capture as much of the value as possible. Because um, I'd read a few books, kind of like yours and um, and and others around the power of multiple levels of pricing. Um, and something that I I I had in mind is that there are people out there who 
would like not bat an eyelid of paying five thousand dollars and the thing they would want is more access or like more uh, a more kind of tailored or experience and even though the content was the same kind of access to me could be the thing that was the premium priced product and that seemed to work really well and in terms of in terms of that as well because um like y- you could have you could have just um with one and a half million subscribers put out a diy course and not got involved in the implementation with people and and, and this is where I, I like not that i didn't have any respect for you before Ali, but where my respect just went through the reef we've got a dog in the room it's just uh Sorry, it's me. we'll just mute you there we go um so like this is where my respect for you just went through the roof because um um you you could have chosen just to launch that course and make a load of money passively and not deliver any like done for you or done with you type coaching within that whereas you actually chose to get really heavily stuck into um some quite detailed and lengthy like question and answer sessions and some like a lot of coaching went on during that um that that first cohort you know there was obviously a thought process behind that yeah. Um, initially, because I'd never done a live cohort before, I was thinking, hey, you know, let's pilot every, absolutely everything I know about YouTube and systems and all this kind of stuff, and I'll put it into a $200 course. And then there's going to be so much value packed in this that no one in the world is going to say, this is not this is not worth the money. But then I had a conversation with a couple of other friends who run their own cohort-based courses. Um, and they were like, hang on, have you have you thought about doing this live? Because like, the thing that's stopping people from making videos is generally not that they don't have enough information. It is generally that they feel scared about putting themselves out there or they don't have the accountability or there's no like community or there's no like su- that, that level of support. And they said that if you actually care about results for your users, for your, for your, for your audience, you wouldn't do it as a self-paced, put it out there course. You would actually hold their hand through it. I was like, okay, interesting. Um, that, uh, that was one thing in my mind. The other thing was that, I, I always have a huge amount of imposter syndrome with these sorts of things where I'm not sure if what I'm saying is actually useful or if I'm just kind of getting high off my own Kool-Aid and thinking that it's, it's, it's useful. And so I was thinking that, okay, if we do it live, then I can like uh, get literally real-time feedback from people and tweak the course as we're going along to make sure it's as legit as possible. And in my mind, it was like, okay, after I've validated this idea a few times with live cohorts, then I'll be able to put out a cheaper self-paced version that people who can't afford the live model will will go through and that's what we're working on now but now that we've kind of battle tested the system and we know that it works i think now it's reasonable to sort of go a little bit more hands-off uh, as like a, a cheaper option yeah and you, you have a you have a very good team around you as well so you know who are able to sort of step in and 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 take like field some of those more practical tactical questions as well which i think is quite handy um i what i like as well is is you kind of like the the, the build and test model which you've used so build and test build and test build and test even to the point of where the cohorts kind of was coming to an end and then you were like well actually we've got a load of people here who are just like waiting for the next thing we have to give them something so you created a like a mastermind group off, even off the back end didn't you yeah yeah we started a random like membership community uh i remember a lot of uh, frantically messaging you once i think like robin i have no idea what the hell to price this thing at like what, what do i price it at um and so we, you know i had a bit of a brainstorm kind of talking about pricing and like annual versus monthly and, and stuff and that's going really well like within two cohorts that's become that that now does like 100k a year in revenue um we've got like a hundred and something members it's like i think a third of the people that have gone through our course have then gone onto the membership community so 
it's just awesome. It's just like this spur of the moment decision to be like, all right, we need to create something has become its own like six figure business, uh, which is, which is quite nice. And we just keep on trying to improve it and make sure people have a great time. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, one of, one of the best things about it is as well, because you put all of that time, energy and effort into it. You've um, been very abundant in terms of making yourself available to coach people. You know, um, we, we've got, again, mutual friend who's gone, been through your program, Matt Brighton. You can start to see his channel just accelerating because he's applying all of the principles through it. And any number of those sort of 400 plus people in that community, you know, they've all certainly got more views and subscribers than they had before they did the course, you know, but it's always going to be sort of varying, varying degrees, varying levels. How does, how does it make you feel when you're like scrolling through YouTube and you see one of your students' videos out there? Um, it feels good, but it also feels like, again, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like this is probably the imposter syndrome in me talking where it feels like, oh, well, you know, this, this person was self-motivated. Like I, I really can't take any credit for, for their success because like I can, I can tell people like, okay, here's, here's what's working and here's how you build a system around your content. But like they have to have to do the bulk of the effort to actually make it happen. And so if someone is actually executing, then I'm like, okay, that's fan fantastic that they are an executor. <laughs> uh, and I don't really feel a sense of personal credit taken there. I just think the more effort someone puts into it, the better the channel will do. And hopefully my methods can just help them avoid a little bit of the pain that I had to go through when I didn't know those methods three years ago. Yeah. So I, it's probably a slightly deeper question, um, but like, so, you know, first of all, I think you should recognize that because I think that they, um, you know, they they they're not your results directly, but they're your students, and you have created like quite a significant impact. Because you know one of the one of the reasons why I get out of bed and coach is because people can afford to pay for their offices. They can afford to go and get married. You know when they might not otherwise have been able to do that. They can um, save up for a deposit on a house or a holiday that they want. And and like there's those life check little moments where I'm like that that just makes me happy. I just love doing that. So you you must get something out of it. You know otherwise yeah. you wouldn't do it. Yeah, no, I think the thing that I find most rewarding is when when I've sort of taken someone from zero to one in that before they met me and came across my stuff, they hadn't been a YouTuber and now they are. Um, so a lot of a lot of my close friends as well have started YouTube channels and podcasts and stuff and they're all doing really well because they realize, oh, wow, this is good and, and, and stuff. And that feels really good, like seeing them do well, because it's like, if they didn't know me, they literally wouldn't have done this. Yeah. Um, and I often get comments from people in, in the YouTuber Academy saying, oh, I saw your video talking about how much money you made and that inspired me to start a YouTube channel. And that was like, yes, but you've gone from zero to one rather than one to 0 1.01. So that, that feels really good. Yeah. And I know you, you're kind of, um, bit, bit, bit kind of tongue in cheek, but you know, those 15 year old, um, people in Pakistan, for example, actually like, you know, a small amount of money made through YouTube is to them probably kind of potentially life changing. So I, they, those are the little bits of impact that we don't necessarily always acknowledge that we're, that we're making as well. So, um, you know, massively commend you, um, a, a, like I said, you're a humble guy and B just, just cause I think what you're doing is just super in inspiring for everybody. Thank you.